Elizabeth North this morning. Can you join me in thanking uh, the praise team for ministering to us this morning? Really appreciate that. Really appreciate them. I want to thank you all for being here today as well. And everybody join us online. If you have uh, your Bibles, grab those now and get to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, if you do not have a Bible, there's a black one in the seat back in front of you. We'll be on page 1053. I want you to get there because we here at FBN exist to help you love God, love people, and reach the world. And we think that one of the best ways to do that is through uh, the teaching and instruction of God's Word to you. And so we're going to do that now. And I want you to be able to follow along with us. I'm going to ask you to join me uh, in a word of prayer as we launch out in this time. Father, we are so incredibly grateful uh, for the opportunity to be here. Uh, the opportunity to gather in person and those who, who can't be here but still join us online. We're, we're thankful for them as well, God. And we're just... We're thankful for the time of worship that we've had, the time of fellowship we've already had, and, and we just now uh, just turn our attention to you, uh, to your word, and we just pray that as we uh, unpack uh, this, this little letter in the middle of, or uh, in the later parts of the New Testament, that you, God, would take the, the timeless eternal truths from it and, and speak clearly today, Lord, that you would be the one that, uh, that, that speaks and moves and encourages and convicts and identifies and does whatever you see fit to do in this room, and we pray that we would be... Uh, just humble, obedient, submissive responders to your truth today. And we ask this all in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, if you're part of this church, then you know that Corinne and I have uh, twin four-year-old daughters. And, and ever since they've been born, uh, they've been really into music, like crazy into music. And uh, I'm trying to decide when I'm going to try to talk them out of this because neither of us have any kind of genetic pool that has musical talent in it, right? So they get too passionate about it, it's just going to lead to a road of failure, and you're going to see them audition on American Idol one day and everybody laughing at them, right? But in the meantime, I'm going to use it to my advantage because uh, in, in, when they were infants, the only thing that could calm them down sometimes was singing a song to them. Um, when it's the, their entire life, they, they've been at a more peaceful state as long as music is being played. As soon as their motor skills would allow, they love dancing to it. And now that they're four... Rhea especially has taken to what I call singing the soundtrack of her life, okay? And so she has a catalog of about 15 songs uh, that she knows, and she'll just cycle through them all day long without stopping. But the delivery of these songs will, is dependent upon her current mood, okay? And so she won't change the words because she's four and doesn't have a, a vast vocabulary. She just will change how she sings the song. And so if she's happy or she's sad or she's angry or excited, it will affect how this song is delivered to the house, which has led to some really ironic covers of songs in the Parks house. So in fact, just three days ago, she was stumbling her way through the living room singing, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. And I just looked at her like, really, Rhea, do you? Because you're weeping through this entire song, right? And they'll also use this as a coping mechanism. Like when they're really upset through tears, they'll just say, sing me a song, sing me a song. Or the really cute time is when uh, one of the twins will ask us to sing the other one a song. Like make, make Rhea happy and sing her a song. And what's crazy is it works every time. It calms them down. But there's this song that they've been stuck on for whew, seven, eight weeks now, like on repeat. They won't request any other song. And so I'm starting to get a little sick of it, Right? But the song is As the Deer, and it's based off of Psalm 42. Some of you may know this. Psalm 42 opens with, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you. And so there's this song that takes this line and builds a really simple song on it, that as the deer uh, longeth for the water, so my soul longeth after you. You alone are my one desire, and I long to worship you. 
And there's been plenty of times in these last seven or eight weeks that I've sang this song while not being in a reflective or contemplative mood. Because I don't know if you've ever tried to sing through the screaming cries of a four-year-old. It's not a worshipful experience, okay? I'm just going to let you know that now. But as I've said these words over and over, there's been enough times of it to really think about the message of the song. And the song is all about desire. It's the same as the psalm that was written hundreds of years ago that's based off of. The second verse is more of the same. I love you more than gold or silver, only you can satisfy. You alone are the real joy giver and the apple of my eye. And I know what you're thinking. Is Brett going to sing it for this morning? There's not a chance. Not a chance in the world, all right? But I can still remember the bedtime. Because it's one of the few times I've had to sing it when they're laying quietly, the room is dark, they're, they're falling asleep, and they asked to sing this song. And as I was reciting the words to them, the Holy Spirit just laid this really heavy question on me. Do you? Do you really? Does your soul actually long for me? Do, do you actually long to worship me? Am I really your joy giver? Am I really the one desire of your life? And we need to talk about this today, not just because today's passage deals directly with it, but also because it's incredibly important. And I'm going to talk a lot about desire today, and I need you to know at the start that this is not in any way romantic, okay? Because too often what happens, especially for us males, we hear language like Psalm 42, and and we think of romantic movies. When I talk about your love for God or your love for Christ, I'm not talking about you writing them a poem or a song or getting them flowers. And when the Bible speaks of It's speaking of that which is deep inside of you that actually drives your pursuits. Because you will pursue the most what you desire the most. Romance has nothing to do with it. This cuts to the core of how you see your identity. It cuts to the core of longing and satisfaction and contentment in your life. It cuts to the core of what you really want and therefore is actually sitting in the driver's seat of your life. Because you can state verbally today, you can even, even mentally state what is your priority and what is your mission and what is most important to you. But your true priority, what is your actual mission and what is really most important to you, no matter what you say, is whatever you desire. Because desire, motivation, longing, whatever term you want to get it, whether you like it or not, it sits in the driver's seat of your life. And if you desire the right thing, then you will pursue the right thing. And fulfillment and contentment and peace and joy will be yours in increasing abundance. But if you have a misplaced desire and what is in the driver's seat of your life does not deserve to be there, well, then self-inflicted wounds and a lack of peace and a lack of fulfillment and angst and collateral damage will be yours in increasing abundance. I cannot overstate for you how important this is. And so that's why I'm so grateful for the opportunity to go over this section of 1 Timothy 6 with you today. So I'm going to invite uh, Briar Nevins up to read today's passage. He's going to read first 1 Timothy chapter 6. And for context's sake, he's going to start in verse 6 and read through verse 10. And so if you're physically capable, would you please stand with him for the reading of God's word? Morning. Morning. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Thank you, Briar. You guys have a seat. Please keep your Bibles open there to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to 
We're going to do a deep dive in those last couple of verses that he read this morning. And just for the context sake, okay, if you've been here, you know this last several weeks we've been going through that whole section that Briar just read for you. And it's all of chapter 6, this whole first part of chapter 6 is probably the fourth section in this letter that Paul is addressing for Timothy these false teachers that had come in in between the time Paul and Timothy were there and the time they came back that had made a mess of things, and it's why Timothy is there now. Right? And in this chapter so far, he's, he's broken down what has been left in their wake and the damage they caused. And in verse 5, he points out for Timothy what was their motivation. Right? That all, these false teachers that had made a mess at Ephesus, their motivation was that they thought their godliness, their service to the church, was a means to material gain. That through that, they could get rich. Right? And so the last two weeks, uh, Adam and I have broken down for you verses 6 through 8. It's all about contentment before the Lord, that godliness with contentment is great gain, and how the man and woman of God has no need to desire any material gain, but instead just to receive from God's goodness what he gives to us and his wisdom. Now, today we're going to focus in on verses 9 through 10, which is Paul's closing thoughts in the paragraph, and he's going to be breaking down what happens for us when people aren't content before the Lord. And, and the first thing I want to tell you about verses 9 and 10 is that this is a passage about desire. Okay, there's a lot of themes here about money, materialism. We're going we're gonna to touch on those somewhat this way, but we're going to aim higher than that today because this is a, ultimately a passage about desire. Did you catch the language? Verse 9 starts with this phrase, those who want, right, who want to be rich. Verse 10, verse 10 starts with this phrase, the love of money. So this is not a passage about money or possessions being evil. It's not saying that those things aren't a real concern in your life as you have to think through your budgets and how you're going to provide for your family. It's not saying that Timothy even shouldn't want paid for his job as he covered in, in chapter 5. It's not saying that you can't or shouldn't be a good steward of possessions. It's not saying those things are important. So what is this passage saying? It's saying that there is a great temptation in money and things. Paul is saying they are important, but not as important as we make them. Because time and time and time again, the hold of money and materialism takes over people's lives. And it always happens gradually. But it happens in increasing measures, often without them realizing it or wanting to address it. And so this passage isn't dealing with money or material possessions. It's addressing the level of desire that we have for them. Those who want to be rich, not those who want their needs met, or not even those who would rather not live paycheck to paycheck, those who want way more than they would ever need. The love of money, he says. This is not a logical recognition of its importance or how it should be stewarded, how it should be used. The love of money is a desire to acquire it by any means necessary. And again, this is why desire is so incredibly important, because you pursue most what you want the most. This is why the Bible, especially the New Testament, the focus of the Bible is not on these external displays of religion or righteousness. God wants to go to work on your heart, on your soul, and on your character, that inner person where desire is born, that inner person where Jesus says a man is defiled by what comes out from within him. And what Paul is warning Timothy against is not having money or things. He's warning against wanting them more than he should, which begs the question, how do we know we cross the line? Right? If the warning is don't want these more than you should, how do you know when you want them more than you should? Well, thankfully, the New Testament helps us with this as well. Because anything that you want more than Christ is a misplaced desire. You were designed by God to worship him. You most become who you were created to be when Christ is the center of your life and the chief aim of your pursuits. So anything, 
Anything at all that takes his rightful place as the number one desire of your life is a misplaced desire. And another word for that would be idol. Now, these idols don't have to be bad things. Right? An idol is anything that we desire too greatly. And so let's, if you were here, let's, let's recall and let's track the, the progress of this letter. In, in chapter 5, verse 17, Paul uh, commands Timothy that the elders at Ephesus should be paid and should be paid generously. So the false teachers, in, in the meantime, between Paul and Timothy, when they were serving that church and they were in the teaching role, wanting to be paid for devoting their life to serving the teaching church was not wrong. Right? That, that is how God has set it up and it's fine. But in chapter 6, verse 5, we see the first break in the armor, don't we? Because chapter 6, verse 5 says that that became their desire for serving the church. They began to see ministry and their role as a means to material gain. It became the reason they did it, right? It wasn't serving Christ. It wasn't helping the church. It wasn't glorifying God. It was that was their reason, which leads to what we find in in verse 10 of chapter 6. They've now wandered from the faith, and they've pierced themselves with many griefs. FBN has a really long-standing uh, relationship and partnership with a church in Berlin, Germany called Crossway International Church. And I have a, a, a deep personal connection because the Lord has allowed me to visit this church multiple times. There are multiple people that I speak with at least once a month. And there was a man that I, I met there during my first couple of trips who he and I just immediately just had a kinship. We just hit it off right away because uh, not only was he devoted to the church, not only did he serve the church, uh, but he had a really hilarious accent uh, he was incredibly funny, and he had what I call just the perfect amount of sarcasm. And so we just kind of hit it off immediately. And when I was going back for the third trip, I, I, he was one of the people that was on my list, like, I cannot wait to see this guy again. And so I got to, to, to Berlin and went to the first church event, and I looked, and his wife was there, and he wasn't there. I thought, that's a little weird, but, you know, maybe he, had, maybe he was late at work or something. No, didn't overthink it. Then I went to the second event, and she was there again, and he wasn't. And so I thought, well, it's been a few years since I've been here. Maybe, maybe something terrible. Maybe he passed away. Maybe he, like, you know, I need to get to the bottom of this. So, and so I approached her and just asked him, asked her where she was, or, where he, or asked her where he was, and what she said floored me. She said, well, he left me. And I was like, well, that was not one of the solutions or the probable, probable scenarios that I had in my mind. So I said, well, if you don't mind me asking, what happened? And she said, well, he just got tired of being out of shape. And so he made a commitment that he was going to rearrange his entire lifestyle. And he changed his diet, and he became a triathlete, and he changed his wardrobe, and he lost a ton of weight. But it wasn't the only thing that he changed. The early morning hours that used to go to quiet time now went to workouts. And then he started scheduling a ton of events and races during Sundays when church was happening. And over time, he stopped stopped reading the Word, he stopped going to church, and he got cold towards her, and he just walked out on his wife and left the church. And I was stunned. And she said to me, you know what? I would much rather have had a slightly overweight, loving, devoted husband than an incredibly fit ex-husband who doesn't act like he loves me or the Lord at all. Now, would anybody say that losing weight and doing exercise and moving your body and getting in shape and getting healthy is a bad thing? Like, would anybody argue that? Of course not. But for him, it became too important. For him, it became to the level of identity. For him, it became an idol. And idols, the longer that they're in place, they will not accept second fiddle in your life. They won't do it. Philippians chapter 3, Paul writes this. He says, more than that, and this is the standard for us in the New Testament, by the way. More than that, I also consider everything. Listen to that language. I consider everything to be a loss 
in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him I've suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I might gain Christ. Did you get what that verse is saying? Paul is stating for us that everything he used to see as important, everything that he found identity, everything that mattered to him, he now counts as literal dung, as feces. And then he says that the single greatest prize, the highest value in life is simply knowing Jesus. Now we need to recognize this biblical truth, even if, even if we're sitting there saying that feels like a really high bar. Here's the biblical truth. Anything that becomes more important to Jesus becomes an idol. Anything, no matter how good or bad it seems at the start, is irrelevant. Anything that becomes more important to us than Jesus becomes an idol. And there's one throne in your heart. There's one master you serve above all. Jesus taught on this. He says in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. Because eventually those two things are going to come to head. And here's what's going to happen. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. And then he said, you cannot serve both God and money, because that's what Jesus was talking about in the context of Matthew 6. I would add to that, what he meant was you cannot serve both God and anything. Because Jesus and Jesus alone deserves to sit on the throne of your life. And what we have for us here in 1 Timothy 6 is a formula that should terrify all of us. Because Paul lays out for us that misplaced desires have have progressively increased ramifications. The Bible uh, teaches, and we've all experienced, right, that the ramifications of sin grow over time. The more we sin, the more we feel the ramifications. We've all felt that. It works the exact same way with idols. Because too often we have this really limited view of what idolatry actually is. We think of uh, all the ancient peoples having their man-made statues and praying to these statues and sacrificing to them. And of course, we modern Christians are totally above that, right? We're beyond that. We've progressed past that. We're so much smarter than them, but we're not. Because our idols today aren't figures on our shelves, they are in the self. And it's important that we catch them early because it gets worse and you need to watch this progression. Because in verse 9, Paul lays out for us, here here is the pattern that this will follow. And he's talking about money and materialism because that's the context of what he's dealing with. But this formula works for any idol. In verse 9, he says it starts with this. Those who want to be rich start with what? They fall into temptation. And now that they want to be rich more than they want Christ... Right, more than they want to serve him and be faithful to him. The, the temptations come with that. They compromise on truth over here. They bend your morals a little over there. You shuffle your priorities around. This is what used to be most important, but now it's, I'm kind of sliding it down. And this is what's most important now. And you just change who you are a little bit. This isn't major stuff. This isn't life-altering, red-alert issues that's going to wreck your world. You're just beginning the process of falling into temptation. You're beginning the process of giving yourself to this idol. What comes next? Paul says you fall into temptation, then you fall into a trap. Because the cold, hard reality is this. The longer you pursue an idol, the longer you serve it, the more stuck in that idol you get. Jeffrey Satinever, a psychiatrist, writes, idols ask for more and more while giving less and less until eventually they demand everything and give you nothing. Listen, the longer that you've allowed an idol to sit on the throne of your life, replacing Christ as your chief desire, the less self-aware you are that that thing now owns you. The less self-aware you are that it is controlling you. And what happens from the trap? You fall into temptation, you fall into trap, and then Paul says you fall into many foolish and harmful desires. As that idol takes over more and more, its demands increase on you, and wisdom decreases. You start losing impulse control. You start giving more to it. You start giving more money to it, more time to it, more energy to it, more passion to it. Why? Because the idol must be fed. 
And it doesn't matter the ramifications anymore. It doesn't matter if it's good for you. It doesn't matter if it's good for your marriage. It doesn't matter if it's good for your family. It doesn't matter if it's good for your physical and mental health because it is your master now. And from there, verse 9 tells us, the end result of that is that you are plunged into ruin and destruction. Do you see what the idol of money and materialism had done to people at the end of verse 10? Paul says they have wandered away from the faith. Can you think of anything more dangerous than that? Jesus meant it when he said you can't serve two masters. They've wandered away from the faith and then they have pierced themselves with many griefs. Do not miss that language. Paul writes they have pierced themselves. You know what that is? That's self-inflicted. You see, we talk about God's wrath and we have this picture of an angry God ready to unleash punishment on you, right? Like he's, he's this nun in a Catholic school and he has divine rulers that he can just slap you with. Well, honestly, that's not the way it plays out most often. God's wrath is experienced in full and eternity, but here, God's wrath is most often experienced by him simply just pulling back. It's just a removal of his grace, and he allows our, our decisions and our actions and our pursuits to carry out to their fullest consequence without intervening. He's not causing the damage. He's not leveling the punishment. He's not getting even with you. We are causing the damage. We are plunging ourselves into ruin and destruction. He just allows it to happen. And with our idols, as we pursue them more and more, as we worship them more and more, as we devalue him more and more, he will allow us to feel the ramifications of that. And we will voluntarily and willfully plunge ourselves into ruin and destruction. And you know what the scariest part of all about human nature is? It's that when ruin and destruction come our way, we will rarely ever blame the idol or blame ourselves. We'll blame God or we'll blame others, but rarely will we point the finger to where it needs to be pointed. In fact, track it in the scriptures. Anytime Jesus pointed out or spoke against somebody's idol, the response was never gentle. What came back was always aggressive, was always defensive, was always over the top. And it's not, listen to me, it's not that Christians shouldn't have righteous indignation. It's not that, that there aren't things that should stir up a passion and a creative response in us and honestly elicit some fight in us because Jesus did flip over some tables and drive out the people in the temple with a whip. But man, to waste that God-given passion on a mere idol is a tragic failure. I wish so much, I wish more of us would work up a third of the passion and anger and fury for decisions that we are making as parents that are stagnating or killing our kids' spiritual growth as we do the coach that isn't giving them the playing time they deserve. I wish we'd spend a third of the time and money and gas and commitment that we may pour into their musical and academic and athletic pursuits as we do their spiritual growth and pursuing their hearts and leading family devotions and genuinely asking about their day and encouraging them to love Christ. I wish more of us would pursue Christ and spiritual growth the way we do that next promotion and that next toy in the bigger house. I wish more of us would be, would be fully content in Jesus more than putting pressure on finding a spouse or on our current spouse to somehow complete us. I wish more of us would be more angry about the oppression and justice that others face than the suggestion that we might have a hand in it. I wish more of us would pursue selflessness the way that we pursue selfishness. I wish more of us would care more about what God thinks than what others think. I wish that, that more of us would care far more about Christ's mission for his church and the multiplication of his gospel than our personal preferences and our personal experiences. I wish more of us would hate our sin more so than we're upset or bothered by the sins of others. And I wish I would do all those things more. 
Time and time again, our idols fail us. Time and time again, they elicit our passion. They elicit our energy. They elicit our devotion and our, and our emotion. And time and time again, we defend them and we protect them and continue to serve them, and it is to our detriment. And it causes hurt and damage not just to the mission of Christ, but to ourselves and those around us. So how in the world do we respond to this? What do we do with this? This is where I'm going to take a minor risk this morning in doing this. I'm first going to ask you to come back next week. Because today, to land this today, all I want to do is ask and invite the Lord's help in identifying these in our lives. And I'll point you to an ultimate solution today. But if you come back next week, in verse 11, there, is, there are verbs and action phrases given to Timothy that we can use to launch out on some really specific steps that we can take in the fight against our idols. But we cannot even begin that discussion without even identifying what they are and at least desiring to rid ourselves of them. So the first thing I'm going to ask you to do this morning, church, is just to simply ask God to identify what your idol or idols are. The idols in 2021 in the American church are not figures on a shelf. They are desires deep within us. At dinner time or snack time or whenever we're giving the twins something to eat that they really like, they never, ever, ever feel like it's enough. In fact, so what happens is we'll set their, their bowl or plate down and they'll immediately just start shaking their head. And they go, no, 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 I want too much. Give me too much. I want too much, right? Now listen to me. The very worst way to combat any sin is to act like you're above it. And since we were created to worship, having idols in our lives is a massive and persistent temptation for all of us that will never dissipate. There are things that each and every one of us in this room at some point in our lives have wanted too much of. And I'm guessing that around this room this morning, many of us still have some. Can you honestly say today what Paul said in Philippians 3? That you consider everything else in life a loss, everything else worthless, everything else as if it was done compared to knowing Christ. That the dedication and commitment and desire to serve and know Jesus outweighs every other desire in your life. And even if you said that this morning, does the way that you spend your time and the way that you spend your money and the way that you spend your energy and the way that you spend your thoughts agree with that statement? Or have you put something else, something lesser than Jesus on the throne of your heart? Listen, I get it. If it's on the throne of your heart, it matters deeply to you. You care deeply about it. It probably started as a good thing. The hold on you that it has is strong, but the first step is to honestly identify it. And you can invite the Lord's help in this. Ask him to show you what matters too much to you. Ask him to show you where you're searching for identity in other than him. Now, some idols are more obvious, right? And if you haven't identified them, just ask the people around you and they can tell you. Or the people who pursue fame or money or career, or success, or riches or sports, the patterns are there. Anything that's taking the vast majority of your time, anything that's requiring a ton of energy and investment, anything that is causing you to sacrifice other things that you at one point in your life said were more important, that's an idol. It just is. My guess is you already knew that and you've tried to ignore that reality or justify it. But other idols sneak up on us. And these are the ones that have to do with identity. This is when we want to be known for something more than being known as a child of God or a follower of Jesus. And so we create and form and latch on to these identities. They form our behavior and they close our minds off to any other possibilities. 
So I'm wondering, is there something that you want to be identified by more so than being identified with Christ? For some people, it's so important that they, they, they be seen as an expert, right, as the go-to person. So somebody has answers and counsel for everybody in life, and so they never admit weakness, they never say, I don't know, and they never act like they didn't have it all together. For some, it's, it's so important to be seen as, as a leader, and so they want to call the shots in every circle they're in, and so they never, ever position themselves in a position of submission to another human being. For others, it's having the perfect marriage, and so you can never admit that, that, that you two sinners as spouses have a fight or a disagreement or a quarrel because you have to project that image out there. For some, being known as conservative or liberal is more important than being known as a follower of Jesus. For some, being progressive and, and fighting for social justice is more important than being known as a follower of Jesus. For others, wanting you to know they're not for any of that is more important than being known they fo- for following Jesus. Every election cycle, people want to be known more for being for or against a candidate. For others, it's to be healthy, whether active or fit or strong or all natural or for science or medicine, whatever your definition of healthy is. And for others, it's a theological camp. You want to be known for being Arminian or Calvinistic or Reformed or Charismatic or whatever. Do you see how most of these things aren't bad? They aren't bad. It's just when they form your identity, they become misplaced. And when they hit that level, those, that identity shapes your decisions more than following Jesus does. That identity shapes how you present yourself more than following Jesus does. That identity, you never question it and never do anything that would go against it, even more so than you would never question or go anything that goes against following Jesus. And at that point, it's an idol. And so you need to ask the Lord, what do you want too much? What has too great a hold on you? And what are you finding your identity in outside of him? And as you go that process, I'll encourage you this week with this, that your only hope is Jesus. Your only hope is Jesus. In Romans chapter 7, it's one of the most honest chapters in the Bible. And in it, Paul goes off in this rant that I think every single one of us in here who've tried to follow Jesus, uh, we can all identify with. In which he says, the good that I want to do, I keep not doing it. And all this bad and evil that I, I want to stop doing, and those are the things I keep doing. And he talks of a, a war waging within him that his soul truly does delight in the Lord, but his flesh just keeps craving sin, and he's constantly in turmoil, and he's constantly in conflict, and we can all identify with that, can't we? And at the end of, in Romans 7, after the end of this really like pessimistic, dark chapter, it, it ends on this high note where he says, what a wretched man I am. Who is going to rescue me from this body of death? And then here it is. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Do you see the answer there? Paul was never going to be saved. Paul was never going to overcome his sin. He wasn't ever going to rid his life of idols by trying harder. It wasn't me by pulling up his bootstraps and going to work. No, that's not the answer. Our relationship with Jesus is based on this very foundation that we are sinners with zero chance of saving ourselves. And he does all the work. Right? He, he, he lived a sinless life that we could not live. He died on the cross to pay for the sins of others, which we cannot do because our death will only be for our own sins. He rose from the dead in an act only he can do. He drew us to himself. He showed us his gospel. The only thing that we had to do was repent and receive by faith. And let me ask you, if that's how the relationship is founded, if that's how it begins, if that's the foundation, why would the rest of the relationship be based on my efforts? No, our answer is and always will be Jesus Christ. And there are steps that we can take to pursue him. There are steps that we can try to suffocate and kill our idols. And we're going to dive headfirst more into those next week. 
But they always begin with this. They always begin with repentance and recognition. As we ask the Lord to identify our idols, we lay them down before him. We be honest with him about the way they control us and ask him to forgive us and lessen that hold and his grace will overwhelm us. And then we recognize that our hope is only in Jesus. That he alone deserves to be on the throne of our hearts and he alone can help us put him there. Which, by the way, is the greatest cost of any idol in our lives. It robs us of time and intimacy and growth in Christ, which is the very reason we were created. And so let us. Let us ask God to identify the things we love too much. And may we have the wisdom to repent of them and plead with him to help us rid our lives of the hold they have on us. And may FBN always be a place where we fight to keep Jesus on the throne of our hearts. Let's pray. Father, one of the most difficult things to ever speak about, to ever talk about is idols. Because it's those very things that we are incredibly passionate about. It's those very things that started often as good things. It's those very things that we find our identity in and we'd rather not deal with it. We'd rather not want them identified. We'd rather not have to rid our lives of the hold it has because we have chosen them. And yet this is what your Lord, or this is what your word calls us to to walk before you in humble obedience, to have you placed at the center of the throne of our lives, to make sure that we do not place anything above you. And so knowing that temptation is, pres- is persistent, knowing that it's ever-present, we come before you this morning and ask that as you work around this room, one of the first things you would do would be to identify for each and every one of us what we want too much and what is shaping too much of how we identify ourselves. And Lord, as we wrestle with those things, I pray that we would have the wisdom, we would have the humility, we'd have the submission to then repent of them, to not stop at merely identifying, but to turn them over to you and ask you for your grace to forgive us and lessen the hold it has on us. Lord, do this, not just for our sake, not just to avoid the fate that 1 Timothy 6 so clearly lays out for us as a warning, but do it for the sake of those around us, do it for the sake of the mission that you've given your church and do it for the sake of the glory of your name. We pray this all in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, we didn't think it'd be fitting to ask you to have a time of prayer and, and, identi- and ask the Lord to identify what these misplaced desires, these idols are in your life without giving you a chance to do that before you leave this very room. And so before they lead you in a, in a final song, we're just going to give you a time of prayer to, to, to pray, reflect, respond, wrestle with the Lord however he is leading you this morning. And then I'm challenging you just to ask him to, to put his finger and identify those things that simply have too great a hold in your life.